0: An Air New Zealand flight is doing a sightseeing tour over Antarctica on a Douglas DC-10 when something goes wrong. How did weather and pilot error cause this flight to be too low over the snow?
1: Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick.
0: I'm Miranda. I'm Christy. And we have...
2: Brendan. Thank you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You've been on here enough you can introduce your damn self.
2: (laughs) Uh, No. (laughs) Brendan's back. Hello, everyone. (laughs) Which
3: means that this blooper reel is going to be fantastic. As they are when Brendan's...
2: I do my best. Thank you. This is episode 51. It is. Which means next week... Is a year. It's a
0: year, although it's kind of not. <laughs> so,
3: it, it it is time-wise, because we skipped an episode. That being said, what are we covering today, Nick?
1: Today, we are covering Air New Zealand Flight 901.
3: We want to thank Kevin Shaw, our patron, and Will Lanting on Twitter for recommending this episode.
1: Yeah, we had several recommendations for this. This was a... ready? Make bum,
3: bum, bum, a bum, flight? Bum,
1: it was. It was a McDonnell Douglas DC-10. This accident occurred on November 28th of 1979. This was a unique flight, because this was an Antarctica sightseeing flight. Fancy. Yeah, so literally the entire purpose of this flight was to take off out of Auckland, New Zealand, go down, look at Antarctica, and come back.
2: I still, to this day, never understand why airlines have sightseeing tours.
1: Unless you had a glass-bottom airplane, it doesn't make much sense.
2: It makes sense in a small plane or a helicopter. It but... does.
1: But big airlines, like Qantas does this now. Qantas does this Antarctica sightseeing flight. They did it with a 747 for a long time. Now they're doing it with a 787.
3: What if you're sitting in the aisle?
2: Exactly. Well, especially because I'm pretty sure... They filled the middle seats. They did a 2x5x2 by by seating.
3: Yes. Why on God's green earth... So that's, what I can tell that's
2: you how they were always done. What I can tell you about this flight
1: is there were this is gonna be confusing. There were five flight crew, fifteen cabin crew, including one official flight commentator. He was supposed to, you know, be the guide. He the was a tour guide? Yes, he was an ex he was experienced in Antarctic exploration. In total there were two hundred and thirty seven passengers on board. That was twenty one less than capacity, and that was done on purpose so that they could move about the cabin and get a better view. However, That's still, there's not enough windows for all those people, so I don't know how in the world they planned on doing that. The captain for this flight was to be Jim Collins. I don't have anybody's hours, just so you know. The first officer was Greg Casson, and the flight engineer was Gordon Brooks. And then there was also a secondary first officer and a secondary flight engineer, but only one captain.
0: Is there a reason for that?
1: I'm assuming the length of the flight.
0: Just so they have a backup?
1: Which is how long? So they
0: can have rests?
1: Good question. It was going to be an 11-hour flight and 5,360 miles.
0: Ew. That just sounds uncomfortable. Eh.
1: It's a sightseeing flight. They get to get up and walk around.
0: And they got those 21 extra seats to stretch out in.
1: And 11 hours is nothing in reality. There are much longer flights.
0: Okay, I get a headache being on anything over... Two.
1: That's because so. you fly in the wrong planes for that.
0: Well, you know... <laughs>
1: <laughs> Take some drugs. <laughs> Take when you fly drugs. over the ocean and you get food and blankets and pillows and entertainment, it's way better. You say that. Oh, no, it is. I tried that. You did the wrong thing. That's Thanks. fine. 19 days prior to the flight. Well in advance of the accident flight. The two pilots, to be piloting the sightseeing portion of the flight, attended a route qualification briefing, which included a video... A review of a printed briefing sheet, and a 45-minute time slot in the DC-10 simulator to get familiarized with the grid navigation procedures, which we will discuss more later. It's very complicated and confusing. That would be used for a portion of the flight down by McMurdo Station, which is a joint station, worldwide station, but it is run primarily by the U.S. military. And it is a research station in Antarctica. This included the minimum procedures to be followed dependent on whether it would be visual meteorological conditions or instrument meteorological conditions. The flight would fly around and over Ross Island, which is where McMurdo Station was, turning around over Williams Field at McMurdo Station after passing over Mount Erebus, a 12,450 foot tall active volcano that was 20 nautical miles north of McMurdo Station. The minimum descent altitude was to be 16,000 feet while overflying the mountain in instrument meteorological conditions, and then down to 6,000 feet after passing over McMurdo Station as they turned around, as long as conditions were much better than normal visual meteorological conditions. At the day of the accident, the flight crew participated in a very normal flight briefing, so as they would any other flight. At 7.17am, the flight departed Auckland Airport. The flight was planned to fly over southern New Zealand, over the Auckland Islands, then over Blaney Island and Cape Hallett, continuing to McMurdo Station. Then they would, returning via Cape Hallett and Campbell Island, onto Christchurch, where they would actually land. It was their first intended landing point. And then they would return to Auckland.
3: Okay, so there was also a bad weather alternative. If the first time they reached Cape Hallett, it was bad weather, they would divert over the Admiralty Range to the west. And then... Hit the South Magnetic Pole for all that that's worth, and then turn back towards New Zealand. Go over the Macquarie Island, the Auckland Islands again, and then land.
2: Right. Did you say the mountain was twelve thousand feet high? Twelve thousand four hundred fifty feet. On there, it says three thousand two hundred. Dude
3: thirteen thousand. I don't know. That's
1: believe me. I don't know. And this that was... is the actual height of Mount Everest is twelve thousand four fifty.
3: And okay. this is in the report. So. Yep.
1: I don't know both are in the report as a matter of fact. It's fine.
3: This is more of a map. Just yes. go with it.
1: Okay. The passenger load was reduced, like I said, by 21 passengers for normal capacity to allow those on board to see it to wander about the cabin and get a better view of the Antarctic. and a discussion with McMurdo Meteorological Office at 12:18 p.m, the aircraft crew was advised that the island was under a low overcast with the base at 2,000 feet and with some light snow. So, in other words, conditions were not great. Not great, yeah. But visibility was 40 nautical miles, and there were some clear areas about 75 to 100 nautical miles northwest of McMurdo. At 12.43 p.m., so about 20 minutes later, a little over 20 minutes later, Scott Base reported that the Dry Valley area was clear and that the area would be better for sightseeing rather than Ross Island. So, this is a totally different area. This is the western portion, I believe. I don't know. It says Scott Base.
3: So, Scott Base and McMurdo are west of Mount Erebus. Right. Okay,
1: so Scott Base, yeah. So they're reporting that there's a a drier area that was clear. A conversation transpired between the captain and the commentator on the flight to ask if he could guide them over to that area that they were talking about. and The commentator agreed. A short while later, the U.S. Navy Traffic Control Center... Suggested that the flight take advantage of the surveillance radar in the area to allow them to go down to 1,500 feet during the aircraft's approach to McMurdo. The flight crew then accepted this, alternative altitude. The flight, however, was not captured by the radar at any point in time. Solid. Yeah, so already things aren't great. The crew also experienced problems trying to make contact with McMurdo Station on the very high-frequency radio telephone. The crew relied primarily on the high-frequency radio transmission during the latter part of the flight, as they got closer. The area that was approved by the Air New Zealand operations base for them to fly below 16,000 feet was obscured by clouds, however, while they were descending into that area. They elected to descend into the area to the north of Ross Island, They were then to perform two orbits in the clear area, the first to the right and then one to the left. The flight was cleared to descend from 10,000 feet down to 2,000 feet at that time in visual meteorological conditions by McMurdo Station on a heading of 180 in a grid procedure.
3: 180 in a grid navigation is the opposite of normal navigation. So this
1: would actually put you going northbound.
3: So in one of the visuals that we have on our website, it is a map of the path that they intended to take. And you will actually notice in that map that north is pointing downward. So yes. this is what they were following, essentially.
2: Yes. Well, is it north still in the right direction, though?
1: But not in a grid pattern. 180 is north.
3: Instead of zero. So
2: if I was looking at that compass...
3: 180 is going be, north. ...would
2: be north. Yes. Right. Yes. Jesus. This is why it's very confusing.
0: I am so confused.
2: Exactly.
1: I have
0: not been able to follow you, like, at all.
1: I'm
2: uh, very me. confused. Believe me. I, can. I already have trouble finding the right runway based off the current wind conditions with normal north. <laughs> uh, actually, oh, that would me. correct itself, wouldn't it? Would? It would! <laughs>
0: You're right!
2: <laughs> so,
1: the, the confusing thing, to kind of clear up some of the confusion, we're talking about Ross Island as part of Antarctica, but it's on the very edge. And... It has a U-shaped, basically, bay area that faces to the north, and then McMurdo Station is on the south side of the island, solidly in the middle of the Antarctic landmass, basically. Uh, All of the ice and the snow. So, they were going to fly into that bay area, where there was ice and snow. They were going to then fly... They were going down to 1,500 feet, where they could see the mountains and all the ice, And they were going to do a turn to the left and a turn to the right. And then they were going to proceed across the island over to McMurdo Station and go back.
3: This is Ross Island. There's McMurdo Station.
1: And they were going to fly in that big U-shaped portion up on the north side.
3: Also, for reference, all of this blue here is normally ice. Yes.
1: As a matter of fact, McMurdo Station's landing field, Williams Field, is out in the middle of the ice.
3: So usually the ice ends right at McMurdo Station. So... This is usually where the water begins. Yeah. That's what we're looking at. But they were also looking at it flipped upside down for all their navigation. Right. So normally when you're flying, 180 is south. But in grid navigation, that they were using, 180 is north. Yep. Because nothing makes sense.
1: Clear as mud. So this like, is all very confused. Something like that. I'm very confused, but
0: that's that's what we have to deal with right now. Wow. So yes. I'm so confused.
3: It's okay. not gonna
1: get any better.
0: How do you Great. think we felt trying to do this research? I can't. My brain's like, what are you talking
1: about? So this just gets even more confusing and even I don't quite understand how this part worked. So they gave him that that instruction to make that hundred and eighty degree turn in the grid. They completed that 180-degree turn and had only descended to 8,600 feet on their way to the 2,000 in that time. It then turned around again to heading a 357 grid, which is 190 true. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, I
2: I, I totally understand.
1: So basically they're going almost due south. And there's a different (laughs) magnetic. (laughs) <laughs> now you understand why flying is hard.
2: <laughs> even even where we live right now, I think we have, what, eight degrees of variation? Yeah, I think so. I think most of the airports are near the eight degree variation. Okay, yeah.
3: so what was happening is they asked for clearance to descend while they were going north. And then they just suddenly turned south.
1: Cool. Is there a reason? Well, they were intending to make that part of their plan anyways, was to turn all the way around. And but at, they did so.
0: At this point. Isn't that the wrong place to turn, though? Weren't they supposed to go all the way down and turn around?
1: Or not did they exactly. already do that? Not exactly. That's not where they were wrong, actually.
3: So at this period, they. Right now, they're like here.
0: Okay.
2: Right. North of the island. Yes. And or it's... south, according to their navigation. That,
1: that yes. Mountain. <sighs> to the volcano. That's what right. And that's in between them and McMurdo Station.
2: Why would they build the station so close to a volcano? I don't know. It's also active. (laughs) I guess it keeps you warm. I
1: guess. (laughs) They probably probably use it for power.
2: Well, probably to study it. Yeah, you're right.
1: So
0: they're still out in the bay at this point. Yes. Yes. Okay.
1: They then descended to 5,700 feet by the time they finished that turn. And they were due to descend down to 1,500 feet as they had previously agreed with the visual meteorological conditions. And they were to do this as they proceeded directly at Ross Island, now heading southbound. Actual southbound. (laughs) True or magnetic? Both. They didn't give me a heading, that's when this would matter. They're still heading southbound. At McMurdo Station. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) You'll see a map in a minute that'll put a little more in perspective. Okay. As the flight continued to descend, the ground proximity warning system started to sound, telling the crew to ascend. The captain then asked for go-around power. Almost immediately after that, the airplane impacted the terrain. All right, good story. The aircraft engines were at high power. were at a high power setting. The aircraft had begun to rotate pitch upward when it impacted. The aircraft immediately broke up on impact. The accident occurred at twelve fifty p.m. at fourteen hundred and sixty seven feet above sea level. Yep. What? <laughs> this is just as confusing as you think it is. I'm so confused.
0: Uh, okay. So, let me guess here. (laughs) Again, this is very confusing, so I could be very wrong.
3: Also, this report wasn't written great, so. Awesome.
0: So, they're doing the figure eight out there in the bay, right? Yeah. And then they're supposed to go, I'm guessing, directly south. Yes. Next to the volcano? Yes.
1: Through the middle of the island.
0: Yes. To get to... McMurdo. McMurdo. Correct. They didn't do that. Am I correct?
1: They did do that.
0: Then how the heck did they... Were they too
1: low then? Not exactly. Then
0: how the heck did they hit terrain? (laughs) Well, I mean,
1: they were? They were. Let me cover wreckage first, and then we'll get into how this happened. (laughs) I'm confused. Good. (laughs) The wreckage site was surveyed by a lands and survey department surveyor, the assistance from the Ministry of Works and Development. The team surveyed and marked a grid of 30 meter squares in order to figure out where the plane ended up and how it ended up there. All on board perished in this accident. They determined that very quickly, which was 257 people.
0: I mean, if they didn't get killed by impact, they could have gotten killed from exposure.
1: Yeah, but this airplane was at a high-power setting.
0: Well, that's true. So
1: they were accelerating directly into terrain.
0: But if anyone were to have been alive, which, again, they probably weren't, but... If they were, they would probably die from exposure. I'm guessing they weren't dressed to be in, you know, Antarctic colds. No, they were
3: not. And I skimmed over stuff about survival equipment on board. I didn't bother reading it since that never came up.
1: Well, nobody survived to use it anyways. The collision of the aircraft with the ice-covered slope left a clear impression from the fuselage. Wing-mounted engines and flap hinges in the ice which showed that the flight was in a wings-level but nose-high attitude when the impact occurred. The wreckage trail was typical of a high-speed impact and resulted in extensive fragmentation of the underside of the wing and fuselage. The wing engines were stopped immediately after impact by the distortion resulting from the impact with the ice.
0: Oh, jeez.
3: This is Miranda Watt looking at the wreckage trail. This was not a small impact.
1: The two wing-mounted engines, the... Oh, no, the underside of the wings and the bottom of the rear fuselage bore the main impact of the collision. Some debris from each of these areas was evident in the impact crater. These are all directly Uh. from the report, by the way. Uh. All of this wreckage. Immediately after the initial impact, the aircraft lifted over a mound of ice and snow, displaced by the impact area, and flew up the 13-degree ice slope in a wings-level attitude. Extensive destruction, which continued until the wreckage came to rest, would have been accentuated by an air pressure differential of approximately... Oh, it doesn't...
0: This is the grid. Navigation. Oh, there you go. That looks confusing as hell. It is.
3: <laughs> I don't know what's happening. This is the island. Yes. There's a penguin outler, outlery? Cool. There's penguins.
2: Cool. If if you gave me, like, a day, I could probably figure that okay, out.
3: Okay, you notice how much I had to zoom in to see this? Yeah, they didn't get to
1: do that. This is So was... you have your global, your latitude and longitude lines, and then you have an, a grid within that, actually. Oh, like a bigger zoom, grid. Can you zoom back in?
3: No, this is what they got to see.
2: Six degrees of magnetic variation annually. Ooh. That's crazy. That's a lot. Here we get, like, 0.1. Yeah.
0: To be fair, this is near a pole so.
2: Yes. does mean that our runways change about every 10 to 15 years. I can't remember. Are, are the poles getting close, are the magnetic poles getting closer to the actual poles or are they going further away from them I think that? they're going further away currently. Hmm. Because eventually they're going to flip. I thought they were in the process of flipping already. They're, they technically are, on, yes. I thought they were on their way.
1: The number two engine mounted in the tail fin continued to deliver considerable power after the impact. So the engine in the tail...
2: Kept running. Forgot it was a DC-10 for a second. Yeah, I was yeah. like,
0: oh, yeah, wait.
2: I'm like, Nick, that's called the APU. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm going to read this one from the report,
1: and it's going to be just as confusing. The spread of the wreckage covered a total area which was some 570 meters by 120 meters and was aligned on a bearing of 357 degrees grid- or 190 degrees true. The wreckage area's uphill slope from the point of impact was 13 degrees, with a 5 degree cross slope, downhill from right to left. The accident site was located on the top of a solid layer of ice, which had a light powder of snow. Two deep crevasses crossed the area of the main wreckage trail, but much of the lighter debris was moved onto an adjacent, extensively crevassed area by subsequent storms and was not recovered. As a matter of fact, the wreckage is still there.
3: It's too dangerous
2: to go get. Yep. It's also probably pretty difficult to get out
1: of there. Yes, it is. Nobody wants to get it, so they don't. It is still there to this day. There's an image on the Wikipedia page from 2004, I think, of the wreckage. The airplane essentially disintegrated on impact into many thousands of pieces, with very few large ones.
0: Well, it was going very fast and hitting a very solid object. Yes,
1: there was fuel and soot. All along the path, meaning that there was much fire upon impact.
0: This
3: investigation was performed by the Office of Air Accidents Investigation, which was a department of the Ministry of Transport of New Zealand. That has since changed. There is a different entity now for investigating aviation accidents. Yes, there is. And Uh, they are actually the ones who rendered this report digitally instead of the physical copy.
2: uh Uh-huh. I feel like the anticipation had like, like, you guys, they're like, you guys want to do this? And then he saw it in Antarctica. Like, no, no, I don't want to go there. Well,
3: actually, let me get into it. I'm going to preface that the investigation portion of this report was not fantastic. It was fairly short and it left out a lot of details that most reports have. They did not address any of the physical aspects of the aircraft and did not mention anything about how the black boxes were recovered and how the data was retrieved. So, based on clues littered through the report, I would say the boxes were definitely recovered and they were sent to the NTSB in Washington for analysis. Great. So, so there's the NTSB's contribution. Yeah, yeah. they, are go they to didn't Ant- go, there. go to Antarctica. No, they go didn't. couldn't get them.
2: No. <laughs> it's above their pay grade. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Probably. Also, New Zealand's way closer. But what's the point? And way more interesting. In any case. They already
1: had the military there. They were like, you pick it up and bring it to us. It's fine.
3: But the bulk of the analysis section occurred outside of the cockpit weeks earlier. As we had mentioned, two of the 3-5 flight crew had sat down with the operator for a route qualification briefing. And this briefing was lacking a lot. For one, not everyone was in attendance. Only two people were there, which is... Disconcerting. Two people from the flight crew, two people from the coordinators, or two people, period? Two people from the flight crew, out of the five. Which of the two the, the... do we know? Not the first officer.
2: I feel like if the flight engineer skipped it. That went fine. The flight engineer actually had done this before,
1: though. Uh. He already was familiar with flying to Antarctica. He was the only one in the cockpit that had actually done it before.
3: But he was in attendance, the first officer was not. That's...
0: Suspicious? Yeah, a little bit. Like, you're the one who has to go down there and fly the plane? You should probably be at the important meeting about flying the plane? You would think. For two,
3: the following details were left out of the briefing. This is also the majority of what I am saying tonight. Slash today, whenever you're listening. The U.S. Navy's Antarctic ATC did have the authority and control of the flight. This was not brought up. Who? Who? the u.s the u.s navy their air traffic control was in charge of this flight
1: yes they were did
0: they even contact
3: the u.s
1: navy they did oh yeah the air the u.s navy was very much in contact with them yeah because they were trying to get on the radar yeah they were trying to get on the radar with the u.s navy and the u.s navy never picked them up
0: i thought that was the
1: no they were also in contact with mcmurdo station
0: yeah that's i thought they were talking to mcmurdo not the u.s navy they were talking to both that did not know that that
1: Yeah, they were trying... Straight over my head. (laughs) They were trying to talk to both. The Navy was trying to be helpful, and ultimately what they were helpful with was the recovery of the airplane. They were the ones that went to go find the wreckage, and they were the ones that did find it. And also, they were a big portion of uh, determining that the airplane was long overdue in its reporting points.
3: Yep. Next, what that was not included, was how to determine minimum flight level for the Antarctic in general, but specifically the McMurdo control area. Also, how this varied from a normal military route. Would that have mattered? Yes, because it did vary.
0: Very, like, commercial as compared to military
3: aircraft? As in the points that they were hitting varied from the normal military route to the U.S. Navy station or whatever is happening there. Next, they did not include topographical maps of usable size. Oh yeah, that's not good. Small-scale maps were issued on the day of the flight- There was a 1 to 5 million scale and a 1 to 3 million scale, and they did have a 1 to 1 million scale of Ross Island, but that's still not that detailed. They did not discuss what whiteout conditions are or how they occur. Yep. Which seems pertinent for an Antarctic flight.
1: Especially when you find out why.
3: Also not discussed was procedure for landing on the local ice runway or skiways in case of an emergency. Oh, that's nice. They did not indicate the relationship of their flight to the volcano, and that they were supposed to pass almost directly over it. Wait, they were supposed to go
0: over the volcano?
3: Yeah, They were,
1: yeah. They weren't supposed to be anywhere near that low for the sightseeing initially.
3: And they just didn't talk about that.
1: This is related to the instrument meteorological conditions and visual meteorological conditions. It was under, in theory, visual meteorological conditions, but with the cloud bases as low as they were, They were supposed to be following the instrument rules per their flight track with Air New Zealand.
3: Correct. Continuing. The computer flight plan at the briefing had been erroneous for 14 months. It showed the destination of McMurdo as 2 degrees and 10 minutes of longitude west of the actual intended point.
2: Two minutes is actually pretty
1: far. It's really far. Especially when you're talking... degrees. okay. Especially when you're talking about that close to a pole... That distance is...
0: A lot. So they didn't have the correct location? It was corrected the day before the flight.
2: I guess that's good.
3: But they weren't briefed on the correct location. Right. They also did not discuss whiteout emergency landing area for ski-equipped aircraft that was located grid northwest of an adjacent to Williams Field with a landing procedure and talk down being available from the Precision Approach Radar Controller. That was all verbatim. That's how well this reads. But it also did not mention that the U.S. Navy did not have the Precision Approach Radar available. They also were only to use this landing area in an emergency for crash landing or if the wheels were up because they were a wheeled aircraft, this landing strip of ice was really only intended if the plane was ski-equipped. So their in-case-of-emergency options weren't great.
1: There weren't any.
3: They also, lastly, did not discuss the process for loss of communications, or rather it was shortened, and reworded from the full version, and it left out any reference to adjustments to minimum safe altitudes and low barometric pressures, which occurs in Antarctica frequently.
2: That was a lot of things they missed.
3: Yes, also, ATC was not briefed on any of their briefing information, so ATC didn't had no idea
0: what they actually knew.
1: Yeah, they didn't know what the flight crew knew. What they were what they were really planning to do. They uh, didn't get a briefing on the briefing. Nope. Nope. No briefing. Great. The briefing. They weren't briefed.
3: One of the useful tools in this investigation, actually, to determine location, was the recovered photographs from the passengers' cameras, which is that's kind of horrible. Yeah. From these, investigators determined that after Cape Hallett, the crew was heading towards the Takan, Takan waypoint near McMurdo. So, Oh, the Takan. Takan?
2: It's a military VOR. Yeah.
3: Well, they were successfully heading towards that at some point based on the passengers' sightseeing photos. The weather on this leg of the flight was overcast with a cloud base of 3,000 feet, and the weather at the ice runway west of Tacan had a cloud base of 2,000 feet with 40 miles of visibility below the clouds, With snow showers reported nearby, that made it hard to define the surface and horizon. This is important. This meant that there was a good chance for whiteout conditions, which can exist in normal VMC conditions. So, you can see everything around you, but you can't see where the horizon is, if that makes
0: sense. Well, yeah, it's kind of like... If you're driving here in whiteout conditions, you have a hard time seeing in front of you, but you can usually tell where you are from looking out your side windows. Kind of. Yes. Sort of. They can't discern where the horizon is. They'd have to use their
1: artificial horizon to figure that out.
3: Correct. Basically. They also can't tell where sky meets land and land meets sea.
1: Because land is white and sky
2: is white. Lots of white.
1: Yes.
3: That's why it's called a whiteout.
2: Yep, we were on a quandary once. Mm-hmm. And I remember a cloud had rolled over the ridge, and you know the snow on the ground and the cloud being in the cloud. Even for like a minute, I was like, "Where Whoa. am I?" Whoa! Yeah, because you know you're standing on the ground, but even then, you don't. It's so disorienting. Have a grasp of like which way's up, which way's left, which way is right. Right messes with your vertigo, and you have no sense of where you are
1: in position in relation to to things. anything else. Yes.
3: New Zealand bases in the area did report a break in the clouds 75 to 100 miles north of McMurdo. Based on the flight path taken, investigators determined that the flight crew used this break in the cloud cover to descend. This was done, despite there being an airline safety requirement for minimum altitude, which reads as such. Minimum sector altitude for approach was 16,000 feet. Descents to overall minimum of 6,000 feet only allowed to the true south of McMurdo by Tacan, and only if visibility was 20 kilometers with no snow in the area and descent coordinated by the local radar controller. If there were no visual conditions, flight level 160 is minimum safe altitude.
1: So what they did was not legal.
3: By their airline, specific airline, yep. It was allowed by the local controller. Right. There's nothing in the local region that prohibited it. It was their airline's requirement that they not descend below 16,000 feet under instrument conditions. Right.
2: I couldn't remember what TACAN stood for. It's the technical air navigation system. Gotcha. It's basically a VOR antenna. Yeah. But that the military uses it. Yeah, they operate it. So I'm I'm surprised that they had the equipment to
1: Yeah, follow that. Yeah. So now it must now have I'm... been
2: special equipped. Maybe.
1: Now
3: I'm going to pull up a map of what actually
1: happened. This will put a little more in perspective.
0: I hope, because I'm still slightly confused on how this went. I mean, I realized they were too low, technically.
1: They were too low per the airline? They were following air traffic controls? Whoa! So you see the left turn and you see the right turn. Then they were to fly through the middle of the island and over to McMurdo.
3: But they couldn't see where land began. They had no idea that they were flying right... Where they were over the island. And then we have another photo that shows where
0: they thought they were. So they continuously descended as they did their two loops.
2: So they wanted to be further to to our perspective, the left of the island. They
3: wanted to be further west. They thought they were further west, rather.
1: Right. Because if they had been further west, they actually probably would have made it over the island.
3: So the flight... Requested clearance to descend from 10,000 to 2,000 feet on a heading of 180 grid, which in this case, using their grid navigation, means north. They also asked to proceed on this altitude to McMurdo VMC, or visually. This was approved because at the time they were north of the island, above the sea, and they said they would maintain visual conditions to McMurdo. But they didn't get any further comment from air traffic control and then reversed direction to finish the descent on a heading of 357 grid without telling air traffic control. Mm -hmm. The captain then announced he would descend to 1,500 feet to get a better view, which was upheld by the first officer, again without telling air traffic control. This all in the midst of potential for whiteout conditions. The crew then realized they had a distance to run of 26 miles At which point the captain said, we will have to climb out of this. And it was as he and the first officer were discussing that the ground proximity warning system sounded six and a half seconds before impact. It was only this short because it started from a cliff rather than a slope chopping off three potential seconds of warning.
1: Which they did determine was working correctly.
0: They did determine that the warning system was working correctly. Well, and the warning system changed Yes, it it became more advanced.
3: This was not the enhanced. This was the
0: GPWS, the original GPWS, which didn't look ahead far enough to know that there was a cliff there. Um, I still have a question. So you pulled up a thing that you said it shows both, but I'm confused. Were they supposed to be?
1: They too- were so essentially stymie. So they came in here, but they were supposed to come in here and do the loop here,
0: and here, and then fly through here. Oh. Here. Okay. I saw a picture it
1: had both.
3: Okay, so what they were intending to do, we think, as it is not explicitly really written anywhere, is there is a valley between Mount Erebus and the adjacent mountain, and it's a lower altitude at 1,600 meters, which is the minimum of that valley is 1,600 meters. So they intended to fly through that valley, maybe, but they ended up further west and were in the path of Mount Erebus. But that still doesn't make sense because they crashed lower than that.
1: Right. What I don't know... Because there's another one, too, that I saw that had them outside of the island.
2: Well, that's all the other pictures we saw.
1: Well, yeah, and thats I think that was the intended track by the airline for
2: low altitude, Was they were supposed to be west of the island. I mean, there's probably some speculation, because the report is not very clear.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, clearly then... this report is not great.
3: I don't know. That's all I got, basically. Um, At the very end of the... At the end of their analysis, investigators pretty much said that if the captain had been made aware of the presence of a 12,000-foot volcano 20 miles from their goal, he may not have made the decisions he did. But the fact is, he did make those decisions after being briefed not to.
1: Right. And they couldn't see anything. That's just what blows my mind, is they got down there and they still couldn't see anything. I wouldn't have even risked it if you got down to... 3,000 feet, Well, and they
3: weren't supposed to descend past 16,000 feet if they didn't have visuals. Right. That's the long and the short of it.
1: So this is very confusing, and there's a few reasons why. We'll do the the findings and recommendations after a break, but there's actually two inquiries into what happened. There's the official report, and then there was a totally separate one done because they believed that the New Zealand inquiry that was made was not done well, and they didn't. They were short-staffed, and they didn't have the, everything needed to complete the report correctly. So this was so confusing that it led to that. Not only that, but then there was a lot of court hearings after this, and a lot of suing back and forth about who's responsible and why. The airline got sued, and of course eventually the courts found that they should Divvy out a certain amount of money to the families. Then there was a separate counter court appeal where basically the airline said, okay, but we briefed them not to fly below said altitude, and they did anyways. So this isn't our fault.
3: But your briefing was also crap.
1: Right. So there's a lot of back and forth on this, and there's a lot of conspiracy about it in reality. Shall we break? Break.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. Oh, thanks. You're welcome.
1: So now for findings, or what they can, what they call conclusions in the report. Obviously, they found the crew was qualified, airplane was qualified, plane was operational, and the weight and balance were all in limits. Sweet.
0: Obviously, because it went fine until they got
1: there. Yep. The flight plan route entered in the company's base computer was varied after the crew's briefing, in that the position for McMurdo on the computer printout used at the briefing was incorrect by over two degrees of longitude and was subsequently corrected prior to this flight
0: okay question so
1: nobody already went over this yep but
0: were the flight crew briefed on the difference they were
3: given the flight plan that was correct but there was not a meeting about how
2: it was changed right okay would it have made a difference I'm not sure it mattered
1: because they were in a totally different place anyway. Yeah. They were supposed to fly over the mountain and they didn't even do that.
3: I think it's more indicative of the disorganization at the initial briefing. Yeah.
1: There's a lot more of let's have fun with this than there was...
0: Let's be safe.
1: Follow the rules. (laughs) Yeah. The system of checking the detailed flight plan entries into the base computer was adequate in that an error of two degrees of longitude persisted in a flight plan for some 14 months. Okay, our confusion over this episode, to be clear, is entirely because their situation was just as confusing. They flew into an area they weren't supposed to be in, in whiteout conditions they couldn't see, sh- and they flew into a mountain. That is how it ended.
0: <laughs> that's the long
3: and the that's short a, of it.
1: That's a good way to summing up. And then it next. was
0: investigated
1: not great, so you know. That's pretty much, yeah, why there was a second inquiry, called the Mahon Inquiry, by the way.
3: I would also like to say that there are documentaries of this.
1: And they don't exist.
3: (laughs) They exist. We just don't have access to them in any way, shape, or form.
1: One of them you have to manually go see in New Zealand at a library.
0: Huh. Okay. The
1: other one is a Weather Channel documentary that you can't get anywhere. Some diagrams and maps issued at the route qualification briefing could have been misleading in that they depicted a track which passed to the true west of Ross Island over a sea-level ice shelf, whereas the flight-planned track passed to the east over high ground reaching to 12,450 feet above sea level.
0: So they were too far east? Yes. Wait. Of what?
3: They were too far east of their intended flight track. Yes, Yes.
1: That's what we're getting at. Yes. The briefing conducted by Air New Zealand limited or contained emissions... And inaccuracies which had not been detected by either earlier participating air crews or the supervising airline inspectors, so when they had done this previously, they also didn't catch the problems. The crew were not aware of the very high frequency radio call signs in use in the area, as well as those on the in the briefing notes. The question making a landing near McMurdo on either the ice runway or the skiways at Williams Field, and the type of emergencies which might require such a diversion was not discussed at the company's briefing.
0: Which is dangerous, but they wouldn't have gotten there anyway.
1: Yeah. The Civil Aviation Division airline inspectors had formally approved the video stage of the route qualification briefing for the flight, and one had witnessed a typical audiovisual segment of the briefing for an Antarctic flight twice, without requiring any amendments or detecting the errors contained in the briefing.
0: So... Did they get a video of where they were supposed to
3: fly then? They had a... So, there were three different aspects to this briefing. It was audiovisual, written, and simulator.
1: Yes. So, the audiovisual was a video. It was... Slideshow. Slideshow, yes.
0: So, was it, like, things to look for then? Because that would make sense.
1: Yeah, it's a general briefing of what to look for, where you're going, altitudes, those kinds of things. Like it's It's an overall briefing of this special flight on its own
0: okay it, it
1: then tells them it, what to expect.
0: I guess well, only two people went to that, but it surprises me that they would go so low if they had this briefing of these visuals and they couldn't see anything so. well
1: and that's what they said, right? because in this one that I just read off, they said that some of the civil aviation division airline inspectors had watched this video and didn't catch that there were a lot of inaccuracies in this video. Yeah, that's a boo-boo. And didn't report it. The operator departed from the stated undertaking to carry two captains on each flight and substituted an additional first officer in lieu of the second captain.
0: So they were supposed to have two captains, but instead had two first officers. Yep. Hmm.
1: On the flight deck crew, only one engineer had flown to the Antarctic previously. So even the other engineer hadn't done it before. The crew were not monitoring their actual position in relation to the topography adequately, even though a continuous readout of the aircraft's latitude and longitude and distance to run to the next waypoint was continuously available to them from the AINS. Basically saying they just weren't even paying attention to the instruments, using those to their advantage.
3: And it wasn't until the captain saw that there was 26 miles left until their next point that he was like, you know, maybe we should climb soon.
1: They were a little close, and then immediately after they got a ground proximity warning system and impacted the terrain.
3: Well, then... This whole thing was... A disaster. A dumpster fire?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: (laughs)
3: This
2: (laughs) is a 2020 episode. (laughs) Except a dumpster fire is more understandable. dumpster fire is
1: probably more entertaining to watch. This just would have been scary.
3: And cold. Yeah. And white. Yeah. Yeah. Snowy. I, I think it's really hard to put in perspective the kind of disorientation that you would experience by not being able to see the difference between the land and the sky in front of you.
2: Yes. So that's why I'm afraid to go fly at night, especially... Like, oh, me too. Like a cross-country flight over the eastern Colorado. Because the terrain actually varies a lot. Uh, and then there's no lights, so the ground's right. dark. The sky is dark. Right. I mean, if the moon's out, you'd probably be all right. But on clear night, yeah, you but... can't see much. Well,
3: imagine doing it in winter when it's white on the ground and white all around you. Right. and
1: Exactly. Yeah, this happens. This actually does still happen in... Even in the United States, if it does snow and then you've got white sky, actually, if you're out in the middle of nowhere and you've got flat white, this has happened before, actually, to GA airplanes. They just fly themselves into a hill because they can't differentiate between the hill and the sky.
2: That's what the uh, bold method guys are doing is saying, because the one dude taught at North Dakota for a while. Yeah. And he was saying that it was always a problem.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's... Spooky, honestly. The crew did not observe the transition level in use in the McMurdo Air Traffic Control Area for resetting the aircraft's altimeters, and this procedure was not published in either the briefing notes or the U.S. Department of Defense documents, which were made available to the crew. The procedure used was that prescribed in U.S. Federal Aviation Regulation 91.81, which required the QNH to be set basically at flight level 180 during descent. This is why they descended to 1,467 rather than 1,500 feet. Makes sense.
3: Oh yeah, I forgot to mention that.
1: Yeah. So ultimately, if they had decided to to descend much lower, they probably would have just hit water (laughs) before they ever made it to the land. Which could
0: be just as catastrophic.
1: But basically, because of that pressure thing, too, there is a good chance that they probably would have hit the hill somewhere along the way, even if they had gone where they intended. They did, however, correct it. The captain's altimeter was not set to the correct QNH until the aircraft reached 3,500 feet. The That's captain, nice. Yeah. The captain initiated a descent to an altitude below both the instrument meteorological conditions of 16,000 feet and the visual meteorological condition of 6,000 feet minimum for the area in a cloud-free area, but in contravention of the operator's briefing and outside the sector approved for the descent to 6,000 feet by the DCA and the company. The co-pilot was devoting a significant proportion of his time in an effort to establish very high-frequency contact with McMurdo Ground Station and did not monitor the decisions of the pilot in command adequately and that he did not offer any criticism of his intention to descend below the minimum safe altitude in contravention of company restrictions and in good airmanship.
0: So he had poor crew resource management.
1: Yes, this was a breakdown of crew resource management because they're actually blaming the co-pilot, because, for spending too much time trying to get the radio yeah, to work. He
0: wasn't focusing on the cat what the captain was doing.
1: Right. He wasn't challenging the cockpit or challenging the, the captain asking him
0: What why are you doing that? Right. <laughs> we can't see anything.
1: Right. The descent was intentionally continued below the visual meteorological conditions limit specified by the CAD and the Air New Zealand limited of six thousand feet to an indicated fifteen hundred feet.
3: The crew were distracted, but not preoccupied by their failure to raise the ice tower or any local ground station on VHF, the failure of the DME to lock onto the TACAN, and the lack of any identification of the aircraft on radar. Translation? What's DME?
0: It's the... um...
1: Distance
2: Measuring Equipment. Yeah, That tells you how far away you are from the uh, TACAN.
1: It's a very old form of navigation as well. It's
0: the same that we talked about with the Korean Air flight. Mm -hmm. The DME Mm -hmm. and the the, it's diff- It's the same thing, but the TACAN is the military version of, of the a VOR. V- VOR
1: yeah. Yes, you can also be a certain DME from something. That's a, It's a very old form of navigation.
3: The company deleted an earlier requirement of visual meteorological condition descents to be monitored by radar and substituted the alternative procedure of contacting the radar controller for coordination of the descent.
0: That probably would have been helpful
3: information. You know, maybe. The failure of the aircraft systems to establish satisfactory VHF contactor to lock on to the McMurdo TACAN was probably due to the aircraft's low altitude in conjunction with significant high ground between the aircraft and the ground equipment. So they had a volcano in the way? Yep. The flight engineers endeavored to monitor the progress of the flight and expressed their dissatisfaction with the descent toward a cloud-covered area. So the flight engineers weren't happy about it. I would also like to say that the captain was some kind of licensed navigator. What? Yeah. So, just putting that out there. That was written somewhere that I read. Although the route selected by Air New Zealand for the approach to McMurdo crossed almost directly over a 12,450 foot active volcano, just 20 miles from destination in preference to the normal approach path of military aircraft which was across the sea-level ice shelf, the Air New Zealand route was safe, provided the crew observed the minimum altitude stipulated for the flight and no extraordinary activity occurred in the volcano. So, In other words, if
1: they flew over it and it erupted, they were screwed.
3: (laughs) (laughs) So basically, they would have been fine if if they just followed their minimums and the volcano didn't erupt.
1: Which it did not. Yeah, which is honestly a lot more luck than anything if they had...
0: That's great, but also you shouldn't fly over an active volcano. Just a thought.
1: Let's go see Antarctica. Here's
0: Let's a get volcano. Blast out of the sky. <laughs>
1: guys, it's really hot. <laughs> I
0: that was supposed
3: to be cold. I love that you guys are doing running motions. Despite the shortcomings of some aspects of the route qualification briefing, this flight and Antarctic flights in general were not unacceptably hazardous if they had been conducted strictly in accordance with the route qualification briefing as presented. The CAD procedure of reapproving Antarctic flights each season on the condition that they complied with the constraints of the previous season's flights led to some items being discontinued without formal notification or agreement, for example, the carriage of two captains on each flight and the requirement for a briefing by
0: ODF headquarters. So you're supposed to have two captains on every flight to Antarctica, is that what you're saying? That's that is the precedent.
1: Yes, that is the precedent.
0: And they, the
3: flight was approved under precedent. Ah. So they were previously being approved based on previous seasons of flights, but it led to some things being discontinued without formal notification. Ah. So Got there was it. no official announcement saying, hey, you don't need two
1: captains anymore. They just didn't anymore. Did two first officers instead.
3: The onboard navigation and flight guidance system operated normally during the latter stages of the flight. The aircraft's ground proximity warning system operated in accordance with its design specifications. Thank God for that. Yeah. CAD had not implemented effectively. The section of the ICAO standard detailed in Annex 6 of the convention, which requires appropriate life-sustaining equipment to be carried on flights across land areas which have been designated by the state concerned as areas in which search and rescue would be especially difficult.
1: Antarctica. (laughs) Of all places.
3: Although the commander of the U.S. Navy... Antarctic Support Force stated that limited SAR capability existed overland and very little over water. This may not constitute designation of the area as being especially difficult for search and rescue activities by the state concerned.
1: I mean, fortunately, they were on literally like the only populated island in yeah. Antarctica. And also there were like Navy and Air Force and stuff nearby. It wasn't impossible for them to get to. They were nope. pretty used to going there.
3: Although some notes on Antarctic survival were given to the Chief Purser or I'm assuming Chief Flight Attendant. Immediately Mm -hmm. before this flight, no additional life-sustaining equipment was carried or training given to the crew members to facilitate survival following an emergency landing on the ice or in the polar waters of the Antarctic.
1: Didn't matter anyways. That still would (laughs) have sucked. Oh, it would have sucked. Y'all had died. I mean, this is a problem. They bring it up because you crashed there, let's say, and it hadn't been as bad. Most of you survive. You have to try to survive until search and rescue get there, and they don't even know how.
0: Yeah. Or where nope. at
1: that right, point. Right.
0: Also, and we've talked about this before, but you should always dress for the place you're going to, not the place you left from. Yeah. Because you don't know if something's going to happen. Except they and you're going to have to get to off be the fair, plane. they weren't
1: really they were, stopping there. They were going to New Zealand.
0: <laughs> True. But if something were to happen yes. and you were to, say, crash somewhere <laughs> and you not dress for the Antarctic you going to die of exposure.
3: I mean, I'd hope we've, you didn't
1: come in shorts and flip-flops.
0: We've also done the opposite, where we
3: flew to Florida from Colorado in November. So we were all bundled up.
0: Yes, but it's better was... to be overly dressed than underly dressed. Facts.
3: Neither the passengers nor the crew were expecting the collision and all received fatal injuries on impact with the ice. Yep. Yeah. Which meant that maybe some people were standing. Ooh.
1: Yeah... This is true, because they were all moving about. This was the sightseeing portion of their flight, and unfortunately, most of them probably were out of their seats.
3: The search and rescue organization was mobilized and coordinated in a competent manner, despite the difficult environment, and the aircraft was located, as soon as practicable, 11 hours after the collision.
0: Hey, considering it was in the Antarctic... And they had no idea where they were? That's pretty fast.
1: It's pretty fast. Less than
0: 24 hours.
1: We have heard of some that take a lot longer.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know,
3: considering everything. Considering everything. My only thing is, there
0: was probably a giant smoke cloud. It was a whiteout, so maybe they couldn't
1: see the smoke cloud. True. Don't know. Don't know. Couldn't say.
3: The aircraft was not fitted with a self-activated emergency transmitter L. Oh, let's see locator transmitter ha that but such equipment is not at present required that has changed good we've, news guys yeah,
0: We've talked about
3: that. elts are
1: required
0: <laughs> elts are required for pretty much every aircraft
3: the aircraft cvr and fdr operated as intended and provided an excellent record for the investigators of this accident the cvr however could be significantly improved as discussed in recommendation eight
1: which we've also talked about how recorders have developed and adapted and they are significantly better now
0: yep they are now digital digital and at least do two hours of recording but probably more
1: some do up to 24 hours of recording 25 25 hours of recording
0: the aircraft's radar would
3: have depicted the mountainous terrain ahead huh. so i don't know what happened there
1: yeah that's just all around messed up
3: probable cause verbatim from the report per usual the probable cause of this accident was the decision of the captain to continue the flight at low level toward an area of poor surface and horizon definition, when the crew was not certain of their position and the subsequent inability to, d- to detect the rising terrain which intercepted the aircraft's flight path. So they couldn't see, and they flew in- to an island.
1: Yep. Ta-da! That's... Bad. Or they have a section with two points called observations, which is kind of a weird one. I can actually read this one out. I only have two overlapping words in this whole thing. Although the accident wouldn't have been avoided if the aircraft had descended below safety height, it was not inevitable until the aircraft reached 1,500 feet above sea level on track to McMurdo and maintained a heading toward grid north. Had the aircraft been turned toward the true north, even at that late state, and either climbed to safety, altitude, or the crew pinpointed their position and headed towards lower terrain, the accident could still have been averted. This is not to say that such a maneuver is in any way condoned, the pilot probably assumed that he would be able to see any and all obstructions clearly with a 2,000-foot cloud base and 40-mile visibility below that cloud. It is not likely that the potential whiteout hazard indicated by the reports of Horizon and the and surface definition was appreciated by the crew.
0: Well, so, obviously. Basically, they, they just didn't care. They, They obviously didn't appreciate it because they flew into a cliff.
1: Yes. I mean, to me, the whole thing was just reckless in reality because it's like... You descended. They wanted to have the sightseeing adventure and I get it. They were new to the flight except for one of them. But still, I mean... You
3: descended below safe altitudes for instrument conditions and visual conditions.
2: Yeah. Also, when you got that 2,000 foot cloud base and 40 miles of visibility, you... You know, if you're flying around anywhere else in the world, you that would be okay. Yes. But when the ground is white... And yes. the sky is white. And, and they, they meet, snowing. Right. It's out of your training, even? I mean, there'd be no way you could tell the difference between cloud and ground.
1: Yeah. This was just reckless in my book. Especially if you don't know the area. This is a special occasion, special flight. This is really just kind of a reckless thing. The operator claimed that, quote, the whole philosophy behind the Air New Zealand Antarctic flights was for crews to avoid a whiteout situation, which is particular significance in landing context not contemplated as part of the Air New Zealand operation by remaining strictly VMC throughout the sightseeing part of the flight. It is emphasized that the absence of snow showers and visibility in excess of twenty kilometers would not preclude the possibility of whiteout conditions occurring and affecting the crew's judgment of terrain clearance at any altitude. Brilliant. It's just, uh, yeah. It's kind of them saying, for recommendations, the first recommendation, the question of the necessity for the carriage of polar survival equipment be resolved before any further Antarctic flights are authorized. Air New Zealand doesn't do them anymore, so that kind of fixed the problem. I hope Qantas uh, carries polar survival equipment. sure they do. Qantas thinks things out a lot more than most airlines do. They have probably overthought this till no end. (laughs) Quite frankly, Qantas probably has... The airplanes are probably outfitted with skis, for crying out loud.
3: I mean, that's not a terrible idea, given the the circumstances. The Air Force
1: does it with C-130s. The route qualification briefing for Antarctic flights be reviewed to ensure it is comprehensive and current. Just change the briefing completely, basically fly the route, see the stuff, make the briefing. They recommended no further flight to to the Antarctic be approved by the CAD until the operator's route qualification briefing has been reviewed.
0: Makes sense.
1: Yep. They recommended the co-pilots, flight engineers, and the official Containers. commentators attend the route qualification briefings in addition to the pilot in command. So the whole crew? Yes, the whole crew. And the tour guide. Yep. Which okay. makes sense. 'Cause
0: everyone should be informed, so if something goes wrong
1: The recommended briefing officers be familiar with the details of all routes for which they have the responsibility of providing operational briefing for flight crews and dispatch, dispatch. office officers officers attend attend the initial briefing for each season's flights. So I'm assuming that the 19 days beforehand is because they did like a general briefing for many of the people that were probably going to be doing these flights. It didn't say. That makes sense. Just yes. kind of, you know, waste less time. Right. Train them all at once. That's why they did it so far in advance. You recommended all entries into any operator's computer, which stores flight plan information be independently checked immediately after they have been entered into the computer. Nah,
3: no, really? So you don't put a location
1: two degrees west of where it should be? Yeah. Exactly. They recommended the operator discuss what emergency situations could involve an attempt to land at McMurdo Williams Field and how the approach for such a landing should be made together with a full and up-to-date brief on the airfield locations, approach aids, Antarctic phenomena, and cabin crew's instructions to passengers.
0: So just making sure the briefings are detailed enough to include those things.
1: Yes. They... In
0: case of an emergency, do this.
1: Yes. They recommend a consideration be given to a requirement for all long-range air transport aircraft flying over areas where search and rescue is unduly difficult to be fitted with an inertia switch operated ELT fitted in the empennage.
0: So having an ELT so they could help find the...
1: But specifically having an, an ELT that...
0: Is triggered by inertia?
1: By inertia, yes, because the, it was continually going forward very quickly into ground.
0: Well, it stopped going, basically.
1: Yes.
3: It abruptly stopped flying.
1: Yes. They recommend consideration be given to designing an inertia-activated location transmitter or other indicator to be fitted in both the CVR and FDR units of all aircraft fitted with this equipment to assist in the prompt location and recovery of such recorders by the accident investigation team and thus enhance their contribution to the determination of the cause of the accident. So,
0: just to help find the CVR and FDR? Yes. Although it didn't say they had a lot of issues finding those. It so. didn't
3: say anything about them finding them. It just no. had the data.
1: Yeah. And that it was very helpful. And oh, the data okay. was
3: signed by the NTSB. That is how I made the assumption that they were found eventually and given to the NTSB in Washington
0: for analysis. Yeah. Well, right. the even having the... Be- I mean, I'm assuming they had beacons because most did at that point. Yes. But... Maybe having beacons, I don't know. That's the same thing, basically, as the one before, just for the CVR and
1: FDR. Yep. So. They recommended no descent below minimum safe altitude be authorized in the Ross Island area unless the aircraft is under continuous radar surveillance.
3: Which they weren't. They were being blocked by a volcano.
1: Yes, this is kind of a... Duh. Yeah. Honestly. Because they told them they could descend to 1,500 feet. They knew they weren't in radar contact. They didn't know where the airplane was.
3: But it wasn't a local thing that said they couldn't. It was the airline.
1: Right. Following airline standards. And they had a briefing that gave them a minimum safe altitude, however. And And there was minimum safe altitudes for the area.
3: But the local controllers were not briefed on those minimum safe altitudes. Right. And were used to military aircraft that could basically do whatever they want.
2: Right.
1: Recommended for the purpose of flights to the Ross Dependency Civilian Operator's Accept the U.S. Navy and FAA air traffic control procedures utilized by military aircraft as mandatory and approach McMurdo via the Bird reporting point.
3: So, in this instance, they had deviated from the normal military aircraft routes to McMurdo, and now the recommendation is to follow those same routes.
2: Yes.
0: Well, clearly, because, you know, they don't crash. Yeah, the military planes didn't crash, so.
1: Right. They recommended that the latest recommendation of the ICAO Accident Investigation Group to extend the length of the CVR tape to record more than the last 30 minutes of the CVR's operation be implemented as soon as practicable. Which we, we talked, talked about,
0: about yeah, more yeah. than once. <laughs> yeah. Referred to Trans Australia and probably numerous other flights that had that problem as well.
1: They recommend strenuous efforts continue to ensure that each member of the flight crew is involved in all phases of the flight to utilize their full potential to contribute to the safe conduct of the flight, particularly in, in actively endorsing or criticizing the captain's management
2: of the flight.
3: Crew resource management.
2: Big time. That literally sounds like they want people to stand in the cockpit going, "No, you suck. You
1: suck." <laughs> well, they had four other people that could have done that. You're terrible <laughs> at this. Can- They recommend no commercial passenger-carrying flight be planned to fly over or close to an active volcano.
0: Nah, you you don't want to fly over an active volcano? (laughs) Just falls into that. Duh? Yeah. There's other issues also that occur over active volcanoes. Maybe you just That don't erupt?
1: So to be clear, you can still fly over most volcanoes, actually, in the world. It is known when they're erupting, typically. And this can be reported pretty quickly these days. But, typically, but, you have to fly over them at a nice high altitude. Yes.
0: Yeah, so where that, you're
1: less likely to be flying through the ash.
0: Yeah, because ash causes a lot of problems. Issues.
1: Well, and it takes quite a bit of time for ash to actually get that high in the, in the altitude. When, it, when they're flying up between thirty and 40,000 feet, it takes some time for that ash to get to the altitude. And by that point, they can tell them. Planes yeah. go somewhere else.
3: Whereas in this instance their minimum safe altitude and instrument conditions was sixteen thousand feet, which is less than four thousand feet over the volcano.
1: Yes. Yeesh. It was Yeah. But someday we can talk about an accident where a plane did fly through Ash.
0: I know that one. Yeah. Yeah, that's horrible. Okay.
1: And finally, they recommended steps be taken to ensure that the number of persons on the flight deck does not exceed the number for which seats are available, except in stable cruising flight conditions.
0: Whoa, whoa, whoa! So not everybody had a seat in the flight no. in the cockpit.
1: Okay, they're trying to sightsee at this point. All the flight crew were standing in the cockpit because they were like, "I want to see." That's. They were all so new there.
0: So dumb.
3: So part of something somewhere I read said that they were briefed to not allow passengers in the cockpit in strenuous flight. Times, if Critical that makes flight sense. times. There we go.
1: Critical flight times, yeah.
3: But based on the way this recommendation is being worded, I'm assuming they found bodies in the cockpit.
2: Well. To be fair, I probably would have been up there if I was allowed. Oh, if I was
1: allowed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> so make sure everyone has a seat if you're going to be on the flight deck.
1: Okay, so okay. I did want to bring up something interesting, however.
0: Hold on, I want to show you where that landing zone was because we
3: haven't seen anything that really has it
1: this is their ski landing area Mm -hmm.
3: this is a mcmurdo ice shelf there is an ice runway right there
1: yes so right off of the south side of mcmurdo
0: weren't they supposed to land at some point or did i
1: nope uh no not until they got back to christchurch they were going to drop off 50 passengers in christchurch and then they were going to continue back to Auckland. That was the first time they were going to land. So they were going to be airborne for the whole oh, 11 hours. Oh,
0: here is previously where it said McMurdo was. Oh, yeah. No, that's not. No, no.
1: It's really far away. Far off. And actually, honestly, if that's where it had been, they probably would have saved their life.
0: Oh, probably.
1: It's unfortunate.
0: So the mountain...
3: So the valley is between Mount Erebus and Mount Terranova. Do so we, this says ice shelf. This is all ice.
2: Do you know the TACAN was located? It, uh, show it Right here, I'm oh. assuming,
3: because it says Flight Plan Destination.
2: Maybe, but I don't think you put that on ice.
3: I don't know. I don't know. This is the bird point that they want it to follow now. Mm-hmm. So it's to come in through this waterway. Open area. You know, not over a volcano. Yeah.
1: So I did want to bring up something interesting. There was supposed to be a very important passenger on this flight.
3: That's another way to say VIP.
1: Yes. In previous flights and in history, when they were setting up explorative and sightseeing flights like these, they used dignitaries and people who were known explorers to help them create these flights. One of them who actually helped create this for Air New Zealand was Sir Edmund Hillary. Wow. I know. I knew you'd recognize that that name. He was, in theory, an argued back and forth through history, the first person to summit Everest. Along with the Sherpa. Along with the Uh, Sherpa. okay. Very long story. There's a lot of of argument about who actually summited first. It's definitely the first recorded one, so. It was the first recorded one. Sir Edmund Hillary was the first to summit Everest. He was supposed to be on this flight. He had to cancel and instead sent a very good friend of his who was the commentator. He was Peter Mulgrew. That sucks. That does suck. Yeah. I mean, you could say it's fortunate that Sir Edmund Hillary wasn't on the flight, but it's unfortunate that he sent a great friend of his instead. Nick, go, go on this flight. You're going to die. No, thanks.
0: Why do you know he would die? I mean,
1: no, but unless that was the point.
0: <laughs> oh, dun, 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 <sighs> no.
2: Conspiracies. Conspiracies.
0: <laughs> okay, well, that was
3: Air New Zealand Flight 901. I do want to mention, since we haven't already, this was the deadliest accident in antarctica's history
1: it was also in the top three in air new zealand's history
3: it is the deadliest disaster in new zealand in peace times and it is the third worst accident of the dc-10 yep
1: so that means we have more dc-10 crashes to talk about which we know we knew that
2: should have a dc-10 month yes we We have
3: something
0: similar to that in like march or february or something like that
1: so while you're here we'll talk very briefly but you and I are planning on starting a secondary podcast. Yes, we are. About your flight
2: training, which yes, you have started. I have started. Congrats. I have now logged, as of today, five and a half hours. Sweet.
1: I think I have 16.2 or three, I think. Nice. In mine. So, yes, I would like to pick it up, too. But I definitely am interested to talk to you about what you're learning in your flight training and such. So I am
2: interested to talk to you, too, about what you have done so far in your yes. flight training.
1: And we will chit-chat about this on a separate podcast name to come. We will give you more on that in the future.
2: We'll come up with a good name for
1: it. But in any case, it's just, you know, that's that's coming down the pipeline. And since he started his training, I thought it'd be an interesting thing now for him to actually talk about that, too. Yeah, well, he brought it up, but it's also, like...
2: Yeah, so, I mean, we'll talk about, like, most specifically, like, what I did. And we'll talk about what you did, too. But what we, you know, getting into training, what to do. What you do during training, different maneuvers, all all the good stuff about getting your private pilot license.
1: Yes. I think that has a lot of its own good aspects. And I think that, honestly, this podcast is interesting, too, because you learn a lot of other things about aviation that you kind of keep in the back of your mind when you do go fly. There's all these other things that you've learned along the way that are very helpful. Yeah, exactly.
3: Have you thought about that maybe somebody's listening to this podcast and then they'll be flying in an unsafe situation and think, hey... I remember this on that podcast.
0: I shouldn't do this. And we save someone's life.
1: Honestly, I hope we do. And I
0: hope you've learned something by this time. It's been almost a year now. If you haven't figured out
2: Please do not take any of these episodes as actual flight training. Okay? No, it is not actual oh, flight training.
0: No. If you're if if you are a passenger in an unsafe situation, depending on what that may be, you should know how to figure out your life. Maybe at this point. But also, as a pilot, don't fly
3: into an island.
1: I mean, these are just examples of things that have happened that are unsafe. We are by no means a training tool at all. But no. But we do try to be at least factual based on the reports, so that you have this information. You hopefully have learned some things anyways. Okay. Yes.
0: So... Thanks for listening as always. Remember to submit submit your spookiest stories for October, the October listeners episode. We had a lot of fun recording the September one. We're really looking forward to the October. So make sure you submit your stories at heartlandingspodcast.com. Remember, you can always email us, message us, etc. We have a new thing on the website for your questions. So if you want to ask us any question, if it's about us, aviation, Flying, how to podcast, etc. That's where you go to. There's a form you can fill out, it'll email us, we will answer them at the end of every episode, depending on how many we get.
1: At
2: least to start. Eventually we might just compound that
1: into one episode.
2: So, so this is on your website? Yes. This is. And is there a limit to how many you can submit?
0: <laughs> we will stop reading questions from you.
1: I will start sending yours to junk mail. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Can it be anonymous?
0: You have to put a name.
2: Oh, okay.
0: You can put a (laughs) fake name, but you have to put a name. Crap.
2: (laughs) You'll
1: never know. What kind (laughs) of can of worms did we just open? All right.
0: So if you hear a bunch of weird questions, they're all from Brendan.
2: Brace. Uh,
0: (laughs) So that's, I think, all the other stuff we wanted to talk about. Patreon. Check out the Patreon. If you'd like a little bit of a trailer to the Miranda-sodes, I put those also on our website. You can go to the website, um, click on a Miranda-sode, whichever one you want to know more about. There's little snippets of each episode up there. Not the full episode, because obviously you got to be a patron to get the full episode, but if you'd like to see what I cover and all that stuff, that's also on the website. So we've been talking a lot. Uh, we're <laughs> we're going to post episode now. And have a great week, stay safe, stay healthy, wear wear a mask, mask, and we will catch you next week. Keep your speed up! Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hardlandings Podcast and on Twitter at Hardlandings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen.
1: If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions.
0: This episode was researched and written
3: by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us
0: plus Leo.
1: And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman.
0: Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.